this prophet, this Old Testament prophet, by the name of Malachi. And that is to live fully devoted. And so what we've been doing is just kind of taking section by section of verses and looking at what God's word is to God's people in relation to what does it mean to live fully devoted to the Lord, fully devoted as a Christ follower. And so today we come to another section in the book here of Malachi, a section that some of you may be familiar with. It's probably the more familiar sections, uh, topics in the book of Malachi that most people are familiar with. And so with that in mind, I'm sure most of you are, are familiar with the infamous gangster John Dillinger. How many have heard of John Dillinger? All right, several of you. In fact, if, even a lot of, of those under the age of 30 have heard of John Dillinger, which is kind of quite surprising. But John Dillinger was born in 1902. He enlisted in the Navy, but three months after, he deserted the Navy to take up armed robbery. In 1933, he robbed his very first bank in Delville, Indiana, stealing $3,000. Within three weeks, he and his gang robbed $10,000 from a Montpelier, Indiana bank, and then stole $28,000 from a bank in Indianapolis. They stole $28,000 from also a bank in Racine, Wisconsin. They robbed an East Chicago bank, killing a guard in the process. His crime spread across seven states until on May 15, 1934, Congress asked for the public's help, offering, get this, a $25,000 reward for his capture. According to the FBI, John Dillinger was now officially public enemy number one. You got it. Over 600 FBI agents were assigned to capture Dillinger. And on July 22, 1934, the FBI finally got him when he was shot down as he came out of the Biograph Theater in Chicago. Now, I'm here to tell you, not all John Dillingers have been shot down, though. There are so-called Dillingers who commit robbery week after week, and the FBI could care less about them. Congress has not offered any kind of reward for their capture. In fact, Congress never will offer a reward for their capture, nor will an FBI agent ever search for them. In fact, there's no law in the land to make the robbery a crime. So who are the so-called John Dillingers that are still among God's people? Well, we're talking about people who, in the words of Malachi, in the words of God himself, rob God. These Dillingers go all the way back to the days of Malachi when God's people robbed God in their tithes and offerings. Now, these verses sometimes are taken, let's be honest with you, out of context, and perhaps you've heard a few sermons on these messages that have been taken out of context. My goal is not to do that. My goal, as we've been going through this series in Malachi, is to share God's Word in context of God's Word, specifically here in Malachi, and how it applies to us today as Christ followers. And so these particular verses, just like all the verses in Malachi, need to be understood in the context of God's covenant relationship with his people. This covenant relationship between God and the Israelites, it was a personal relationship. It was a loving relationship, but it was also legal. 
And it was sealed with an oath that God made Himself. In other words, God made a covenant with His people, the Israelites. One author and pastor, Tim Keller, describes it this way. A covenant relationship is more loving and intimate than a merely legal relationship, but more binding, enduring, and accountable than a merely personal relationship. And so God even referred to this covenant relationship at the very beginning of the book of Malachi. And we looked at it. And when God referred to it, He he was laying the foundation for what He's getting ready to tell the people of God. Including this right here. And God referred to this when He declared His everlasting love for His people back in chapter 1, verse 2, when He tells them, listen, I have loved you. And I will continue to love you, and nothing will change that. My love is an everlasting love, but the people doubted God's love. And as a result, as we have seen so far, they were now living half-hearted in their relationship to God instead of fully devoted. They were in this downward spiral of offering God worthless worship departing from the truth of God's Word and in dealing treacherously in their marriages. And and as we saw last Sunday, they're now beginning to accuse God of injustice. The people's half-hearted living. Let's be honest, it's led them far, far away from God as their Father. To the point now that they're robbing God. But God loves His people. It's an everlasting love. And so what we're going to see in these verses is God's plea to God's people then and even now today for us is the same. And God's plea is basically this. Return to me. Return to me. Don't rob me. But this plea is based on a God who never changes. Notice this in your notes. Uh, and if you're here as a guest of ours or, or you know, even a, an attender, you're welcome to, to pull out the insert in your bulletin and kind of follow along in your notes, or you can just follow on the screen behind me here. But this plea is based on a God who never changes. God is always faithful, even when we are unfaithful. And I am so thankful for that because, man, when I look at my life, I see so many times when I am unfaithful to God. And God is still faithful to me. God begins His plea by assuring the people that He has not changed, that He is always faithful even when we are unfaithful. Look what God says about Himself in these verses here. Chapter 3, verses 6-7. through Look at it with me again. God says, For I am the Lord, I do not change. Therefore you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. Yet from the days of your fathers you have gone away from my ordinances and have not kept them. And now hear God's plea. He says, return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. You see, if God could get better or if he could get worse, he would cease to be perfect. By God's very nature, he is unchanging in his love. He's unchanging in his justice. He is unchanging in his faithfulness towards his people, even when they prove unfaithful. And so God basically tells his people here, listen, you have sinned, and you deserve judgment. 
but I'm going to extend my mercy towards you. I'm going to extend my grace towards you because of the promise that I made to your father Jacob years ago. In fact, so strong is God's covenant relationship with His people that God says He will not consume them even when their sins deserve it. Whoa! If the covenant relationship was dependent upon their perfect obedience, get this, they would have been consumed long ago. Long ago they would have been consumed by God. Because they have not changed. They have not turned from their sins. And oh, who here does not relate to that at times in our lives? God points out to them that they were disobeying Him just as their forefathers had done. And yet, God still calls on them to return to Him. And here's the point. God is telling them and He's reminding us, He says, listen, I do not change. I am always faithful. You can count on it. And what that means is God's people need to change. But oftentimes, we don't think we need to change. Oh man, I'm, that's me, right? And so the people in Malachi's day, just as we often do today, they began arguing, arguing with God about their need to change. But they show just how much they need to change when they ask God in verse 7, in what way shall we return to you, God? Again, this is not a question of clarification by the people, but rather it's a question of contention on their part that stubbornly asks, God, how can we return when we've never gone away? God, what are you talking about returning to you? And God tells them exactly what He's talking about. God gives them now this very specific example of just how far they have gone from God. And He does that in verse 8 when He says, You don't think you've gone from Me? You don't think you're the ones that have strayed? Let me show you. Let me give you just one example out of many that I could give to you. And then He asks them, Will a man rob God? Yet, you have robbed me. And so, let's break this down. What is God telling us? What is God's plea to us here? Then and now is to return to me, don't rob me. So how then do we return to God when we have strayed from God? And specifically in the area of giving. Well, number one, hear God's charge. And God's charge is simple. He's telling the people, you've robbed me. You've robbed me. God has a serious question for His people. Will a man rob God? And it's a big question. It's a question we need to ask ourselves once in a while. Would I rip God off? Would I steal from God? Robbing God is a serious charge. But God states in verse 8 to the people in Malachi's day, yet you have robbed me. And once again, the people plead their ignorance When they ask in verse 8, in what way have we robbed you, God? Now God, because He knows His people, He's ready for an answer. Just like a father is always ready for the answer of their children when he's getting ready to confront them and he knows what they're going to say. And so God's ready for an answer. And God says in verse 8 and 9, He says, they ask in what way have we robbed you? And He says in verse 8 and 9, in tithes and offerings. 
You are cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. And so what God is doing here is he's charging the Israelites, his people, he's charging them as thieves who have robbed him in tithes and offerings. Now, the word tithe, what does that mean? Sometimes there's confusion about that, but the word tithe uh, literally means a tenth or ten percent, which means God's people in the days of Malachi in the Old Testament here were instructed to give ten percent of their income, or sometimes it's referred to as the first fruits of, of their harvest, of their income to the Lord. In fact, all families uh, of the Israelites were required to give this tithe for the very purpose of maintaining the ministry at the temple and for supporting the priest who served in the temple. That was the purpose back then for the tithe that God required from the Israelites. Now, we can safely assume, because we've studied the book here so far, that whatever the people were giving, whatever they were giving in their tithes and offerings, it was probably as lame as the sacrifices that they were giving. Remember the sacrifices that they gave? Their worthless worship. And God calls them on the fact that they were giving sacrifices. These animals, they were lame, they were blind, they were sick, they were blemished. They were the worst of the worst of their crop. And and so instead of giving their best, they're giving their worst. And God says, whoa, man, I'm worthy of much more than that. And so whatever they were giving, it was probably as lame as that. They were giving a partial tithe, if you will, which is to say that they were comfortable now with partial obedience. But God was not. And he calls the people on it. And as a result, the whole nation, God says, was now, quote, cursed with a curse. As is always the case, sin has consequences. And the result of this sin was already in effect in that their fields were not producing a good harvest. God's curse, and we've looked at this already, few weeks ago, God's curse is basically the opposite of God's blessing or God's favor on one's life. In fact, God told the people a few years earlier, before the prophet Malachi writes and comes to them and speaks to them God's message, God sends another prophet to speak to his people. He does that through, through the prophet Haggai. And listen to what God reminds the people then. In chapter 1, verse 6, he tells them, you have sown much and bring in little. You eat, but do not have enough. You drink, but you are not filled with drink. You clothe yourself, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages, earns wages to put into a bag with holes. Now, the purpose of God's curse was not to be mean to his people. God's not about just being mean to be mean. That's not God's intention. That's not That's not his purpose. In that day and age, in the Old Testament, the reason God would curse his people is because, one, they were falling away from him. They were living in disobedience, and so God wants to get their attention. And so the curse is meant to get their attention and bring them back to God. God's plea is what? Return to me. And so a curse was kind of like, you know, as a father, I have two boys, and when they do wrong, what do I do? I discipline them. And the purpose of that discipline is to get their attention. Jack, Tyler, come back to your father and mother in the ways that you should live. And that's the same thing here. In fact, God tells the people 
through another Old Testament prophet, Amos, chapter 4, verse 9. He says, many times, I struck your gardens and vineyards. I struck them with blight and mildew. Locusts devoured your fig and olive trees. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Now, that was then, in Malachi's day. They were the God's people, Israelites, were robbing God in their tithes and offerings. So today, how does this apply to us? Well, let's ask the question, how do we rob God? Can we rob God still today? Is it possible for us to rob God? And I think the, by application, the answer is yes. So how then do we rob God now? Well, notice this in your notes. We rob God with unfaithful giving. With unfaithful giving. Now, some people say that tithing is an Old Testament law that no longer applies to us today as Christ followers who are living now in the New Testament age of grace or under grace because we're no longer under the law. And there is true, the tithe was part of the Old Testament law. But the tithe also existed long before the law of Moses was even given when Abraham gave a tithe. And it's also true that in the New Testament, we are now under grace, the grace that is offered to us through Jesus Christ. That is true, not law. We're not under law anymore. And that's why we practice today, God's people, Christ followers like us, we now practice what is called grace giving. That may include giving above and beyond of just giving 10%. So while we are no longer under the law that's in the Old Testament, tithing, I would suggest to us all here, is still a great place to start in our giving. doesn't necessarily mean you have to start at 10% in giving a tithe, but it's a great place to start, regardless of the amount of money you give in your offerings to the Lord. Here's the question all of us need to ask ourselves, including me. Am I robbing God with unfaithful giving? Whether that giving is a tithe or some other amount. Now, why then are we prone to rob God? Why does that sometimes happen in our lives? Well, notice this in your notes here. We rob God, and there's many reasons, but I think this is one of the primary reasons. We rob God when we wrongly believe we're the owner. We rob him when we believe, wrongly believe, that we're the owner of what we have. You see, the Israelites, they didn't think they were robbing God. And the reason they didn't think they were robbing God is because they had the wrong idea about their property and possessions. You see, they wrongly believed that they owned whatever they had. It was theirs. But the Bible teaches us that we're not the owners, but rather we are the stewards of what we have from God. One author writes, about the Israelites, their attitude towards property was not one of stewardship, according to which their possessions were held as a sacred trust from God, but was one of ownership. And we, we oftentimes fall into that same perspective, that same mentality. And here's the flip side of that. When we begin to think that, that we're the owners 
of what we have in our lives, here's the flip side of that coin. Oftentimes we begin to think that we're the owner of what we have. We think we're also the source of what we have. I'm not only the owner, but I'm the source of it. You see, the Israelites thought that their blessings were coming from themselves. That it was their blessings were coming up from the ground, from the harvest of their hard work that they were producing their blessings. But God reminds them that blessings don't come up from creation. Blessings come down from the Creator. You go to the New Testament, and James says it this way in James 1.17. He reminds us that every good and perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father. To us. You see, this is one of God's primary purposes in asking His people, even today, to give faithfully. It teaches us to put God first in our lives. It also teaches us to acknowledge that God is the source of all our blessings, that He is the source of everything that we have in our possessions, and that it is not mine. I'm not the owner. God is the owner of it all, and I am simply the steward. And so when we tithe or when we give, whatever amount that may be, it's a way to be reminded that God owns everything I have, and everything I have comes from Him. If we believe we own all we have, then we're naturally reluctant to part with any of it. But if we believe that God owns all that we have, then we're now free to give it away on His behalf for His kingdom and for His purposes. God's plea to His people then and now is, return to me, don't rob me. And the first step in returning to God is to hear God's charge. The second step is to heed God's command. Heed His command. And of course, the command is to return to the Lord. God commands His people in verse 7, return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Now, stay with me on this because this is critically important what we're getting ready to look at here. When God commands the people to return to Him. In doing so, God is revealing that His ultimate desire is to experience an intimate relationship with His people. Whoa! God wants to have a relationship with me. He wants to have a relationship with you. That's his heart's desire. And he's pleading with his people, just as he pleads with us, return to me. Listen, that phrase, return to me, is the language of relationship. The emphasis God is making is not so much return to keeping my law and giving a tithe, as much as it is return to me. Return to me as your heavenly Father. Return to me as your supreme Master. God's heart and our root need is always, always relational. God is seeking a relationship with us. 
And that's why he says, return to me. So how do we do that? What are the the practical ramifications now of turning to God? Well, number one, look at this. First of all, returning to God involves repenting of sin. It involves repenting of sin. And you say, where do you get that? Well, we get it from the very word return. Because this word return actually means repent. And so God's call to return, folks, get this, is really a call to repent. Repent means to do an about face. It's the idea you're walking in one direction, and you do a 180, and you now walk in a different direction. That is the literal meaning of the word repent. But repent is is much more than just changing directions in your life. Yes, it includes that. But repentance, get this, repentance is the pathway to restoring a relationship. And in this case, repentance is the pathway in which we restore a relationship with God our Father. Repentance, yes, it is turning from sin. We're walking this way. We have gone far away from God, says. And we now return. We repent and we return. But we are returning to someone. And that someone is God the Father. Why? Because he's pleading. He's pleading, return to me. Return. He wants to have a relationship with us. And so this is so beautiful. God's call to repent. It's an invitation to restore a relationship with him. And you can hear God's desire all through the Old Testament books. You go to another Old Testament book in Hosea, chapter 14.1, and God calls out to the same people, the Israelites, his people. He says, return, O Israel, to the Lord your God. Your sins have been your downfall. And here's the good news. When we turn back to God, Even if it's just one small step, God promises to meet us. James chapter 4, verse 8 says, Come near to God. You know what He will do? He will come near to you. Now, you would think, you would think God's people would want to return to their Redeemer. After all, it's in their best interest, is it not? You bet it is. God says, if you return to me, I will bless you. But because you have fallen away, now you're cursed. So it's in their best interest to return. So you would think they would want to return to their Redeemer. But God's people, oh man, they are hard-hearted. They are stubborn. And I'm like, yeah, I've been there, done that. I I can relate to that a little bit. They haven't changed much over the years. Remember what God tells the people in verse 7. He says, yet from, from the days of your fathers. In other words, from the, and who, who was the father? Father Abraham. You, all right, you get it? From the days of their father, Father Abraham, Israel, and Jacob. And God is saying, man, go back through your history. Just look at your family history. And from the days of your fathers, you have gone away from my ordinances and have not kept them. But instead of repenting, instead of doing a 180 and going back to God, they deny in their stubbornness, in their arrogance, they deny they even have a problem. God, what? what, what? 
What are you talking about? They ask, in what way shall we return? And I love what 1 John 1, 8 says to us. He says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Let me tell you, God's people were deceiving themselves. In what way shall we return? God's just told them, you are full of sin, and now they're saying, I have no sin. But we're just like them, are we not? And so thank the Lord that the verse goes on, 1 John 1, 9, which we're familiar with, says, if we confess our sins, He, God, is faithful to do what? He is just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so get this, the starting point in returning to God is is acknowledging our sin and agreeing with God that we have sinned. And when we do that, God says He is faithful to forgive us and restore us in our relationship with Him. Folks, here's what I want you to hear. God wants a relationship with you. And that's the foundation in which God is confronting His people, even in this area of giving. But second of all, notice this. Returning to God involves giving to God. Returning to God involves giving to God. Now hear me on this. The evidence of our returning to God is our giving to God. And and the reason it's giving, because that's a specific area that God is calling them on and challenging, confronting them on, in which they have strayed away. Not that it's the only area, but that's the area that God is dealing with. That's why, after God pleads with his people to return to me, he then commands them in verse 10, hey, bring all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. So God just doesn't ignore that. You say, well, what is the storehouse? Well, the storehouse is, back in those days in Malachi, in the temple, There were rooms in the temple. You can almost think of them as chambers in the temple where the tithes and offerings were stored. Now, don't necessarily think of tithes and offerings. You mean they stored all this gold and coins and paper money? No, they didn't. It wasn't that way. Remember, in the Old Testament society, in the days of Malachi especially, it was an agrarian society, and so the tithes and offerings were often what is called the first fruit of their harvest. Which is why when you go to Proverbs chapter 3, verse 9, it says, Honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first fruits of all your increase. And so the storehouse is where they would bring their tithes and offerings, their grains, their harvest, whatever it may be, and they would store it in there, again, for the purpose of maintaining the ministry of the temple and for supporting the ministry of the priest. And so God tells the people now that part of the way, what is involved in returning to Him, is to obey Him in this very area of giving. You see, their covenant relationship, please understand this as well, was not birthed out of their obedience. This relationship they have with God, and the promise that God makes to them, I will be your God, you will be my people. It's not birthed out of their obedience, but out of the gracious love of God. Remember, there was nothing in them that made God choose them. God just chose them because he chose them. Out of grace, out of love. This means, though, 
Obedience is not what keeps them in a relationship with God. However, obedience is the way they return to that relationship with God. Now, let me give you an example of this. This is critical because some of you are sitting there and you're probably thinking, all right, God says he wants me to return, confess my sin, repent. But man, he's still dealing with this issue of obedience. You bet he is. And if you're a parent, we're no different. If you're a parent, you understand this. You get this. And when my boys do something wrong, and as their father, I call them on it, and I go into the room and I say, listen, this is not, this is not cool in our household here. This has got to change. What you did was wrong. The disobedience, the disre- it doesn't matter. You choose whatever area you want, you choose. So I'm going to call, let's say, Jack and Tyler on, and they've done wrong, and I'm now calling them on them. I'm explaining, this is wrong, and here's why it's wrong. And the first thing I'm looking for is, is there any repentance in their heart? And that's, that's sometimes hard to see, hard to define, but it comes out in attitude. Is what's the attitude? Is there repentance here? Is there, is there any kind of remorse going on? Or is there still defiance in their heart? Like the people of Malachi's day. What, Lord? See, if that's the response I get from Jack, what, what do you mean, Dad? I'm like, all right, we got a whole lot of work to do here. All right? But if there's like, Dad, man, I know, I did it. I blew it. You're right, man. I shouldn't have done that. Repentance. But is that the end of the story? No way that ain't the end of the story. Because what is now the evidence of that repentance? He's going to begin to change his ways in this specific area. And so now the following week, here's what I want to see. How are you doing in this area? Because if you're not changing in any way, shape, fashion, or form, we need to go back to the heart in here. And so this returning involves, yes, a heart issue, but it evidences itself in action, in obedience. And so it always involves both. And in this case with God's people, it was repentance of sin and also obedience in giving to God. God's plea to his people is return to me, don't rob me. And the first step is hear God's charge. The second step is to heed God's command. And the third step is now honor God's challenge. Try me. In Malachi 3, verse 10, we read something that is very, very unusual here in the Word of God. God issues a challenge to the people of Israel. And He basically says, go ahead, try me on this giving thing and see if you don't come out ahead. Look at it. Notice God's challenge here in verses 10 through 12. God says, bring all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and prove or try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. And now here's his promise. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. And I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes so that he will not destroy the fruit of your ground, nor shall the vine fail to bear fruit for you in the field, says the Lord of hosts. And all the nations will call you blessed, for you will be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. What a challenge and what a phenomenal promise God gives to the people of Israel. God dares his people to try him to see, get this, if renewed obedience leads 
to renewed blessing in their life. God says if His people will obey Him with faithful giving, He will open the windows of heaven and pour out such blessing on them that there will not be room enough to receive all at all. Whoa! This phrase, windows of heaven, it's an interesting phrase. In fact, it's the same phrase that is used in Genesis chapter 7, verse 11 to describe when God opened up the windows of heaven to flood the earth with water. And so God is using the same analogy here, not with water in cursing the earth, but now with His blessings to bless His people. Can you picture it? Like rain falling from the sky, God will pour out His blessing upon His people for their faithfulness. God also promises to protect His people when He says He will rebuke the devourer. Now, who in the world is the devourer? Well, there's a lot of interesting concepts on this, and people think it could refer to insects, it might refer to fire, it might even refer to foreign armies coming in and conquering the people and devouring them. In other words, it's all the above. And God is saying, no matter what happens to you, when you faithfully give to me, I will provide for you and I will protect you. And finally, God promises that he will give his people a good reputation and he will make their land, quote, delightful. This is interesting. It's basically the same promise that God made Abraham. Just as God promised Abraham back in Genesis 12, God promises to make Israel a great nation if they're willing to esteem God as the highest priority in their lives. That is, if Israel will exalt the Lord's name in their lives, then God will exalt their name among the nations. And the nations will now look on them, and they will have a great reputation. And God will use them to bless those other nations, which was always God's purpose with his people to, from the beginning. Now, although this specific promise here was specifically for God's people in the days of Malachi, the principle of it still carries forward for God's people today. And here's the principle. Notice this of God's challenge. He says, if you will obey God with faithful giving, God will bless you with fruitful living. Now, that doesn't mean God will make you rich. You're like, oh, man, bummer. Or that you'll win the lottery. God will, you'll, find fa- God, you know, you'll find favor in God's eyes and you'll win the lottery. That's not what it's saying. It's not, it doesn't mean that life will be easy and problem-free. But God will bless you with fruitful living for his kingdom purposes. God reminds us of this universal principle in the New Testament in 2 Corinthians 9, verse 6, when he says, Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. You see, too many times we think our lives are like a bucket where we just keep everything for ourselves. But God says it's supposed to be like a funnel where we share our blessings with others. And God is saying, if you will open the bottom of the funnel by giving faithfully, I'll pour it in the top of the funnel so that you will not suffer lack. But if you greedily close up the bottom of the funnel, I'll quit pouring it in the top. Paul elaborates on the same principle in 2 Corinthians 9, 8, when he says, and God is able to bless you abundantly 
so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound, not for your kingdom, not to build your career, not to build up your IRA in retirement. No, 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 he says, so that you will abound in every good work. In other words, for the glory of God and the good of others. Let me give you two guidelines for faithful giving in an age of grace in which we now live. I can't elaborate on these. Let me just give them to you. The first is give cheerfully from your heart and give proportionately to your income. That would be the New Testament guidelines today. To give cheerfully from your heart. 2 Corinthians 9, 7 says, Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly, or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And then the second guideline is to give proportionately to your income. And so the issue is, please hear me, is not so much whether you give 10% or you give 5% or you give 15%. The issue is give faithfully to God. And God's standard of determining how much to give is found then in 1 Corinthians 16, 2, when he says, on the first day of the week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income. That is, give according to your income, or, or give according to how much God has blessed you. Someone put it this way, give according to your income, lest God make your income according to your giving. It's something to think about. So proportional giving means that the more God blesses you, the more you're able to give. Which means if, if you're greatly blessed by the Lord, man, you'll soon be giving way more than 10%. Regardless of what you think about tithing or what you think about grace giving, there's a timeless truth behind the concept of putting God first in our finances. That's the beauty of the tithe, though. It's God's historical method that we see in the Old Testament to get us on the road to giving. And so in that sense, man, I submit to you that tithing is a great place to start in the joy of grace giving today. Think of it this way. Tithing isn't the ceiling of giving. It's the floor. It's not the finish line. It's just the starting blocks. I like how Randy Alcorn says it in his book, The Treasure Principle. Tithing can be the training wheels to launch us into the mindset, skills, and habits of true grace giving like the Macedonian believers excelled in here in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9. So how do we get started in this? How do we put on the training wheels in giving? Well, let me offer you two suggestions here of how to get started in living fully devoted in your giving. Number one is audit your giving. Audit your giving. That is, evaluate the faithfulness of your giving in 2015. Here are some questions to consider. What does the consistency of your giving reflect about your faith in God's promise to not change? What does the amount of your giving reflect about your faith in God's promise to provide? What does the attitude of your giving reflect about your faith in God's promise to bless? And here's the thing. When you look across America, the statistics reveal that the church today is not great at giving. According to recent surveys, Christians give, on average, 2.3% of their income to the local church. That's the national average here in America. 
That sounds low, but how low is it? Well, for some perspective, consider this. During the Great Depression, Christians were giving 3.3% of their incomes to the church. Even more disturbing than this is that 33 to 50% of church members report that they give nothing at all to the church. Now, thankfully, oh, how thankfully, our church is way above the national average when it comes to giving. In fact, if you were here for our, our Ignite Praise and Prayer time, we reported and talked about this a little bit. I'll give you the overview. In 2015, our church gave over $391,000 in combined budgets of the general budget and the missions budget, over $391,000. Of this amount, $303,000 was given in tithes and offerings, which is our general budget, and $88,000 was given in faith promise, which is our missions budget. This is the result when God's people give faithfully to support the mission and ministries of his church. If you're, in case you're wondering, there's no storehouse here at Glenwood. Okay? There's not a storehouse in the back room somewhere where we hide the money. All right? We don't have storehouses anymore. But we, the principle holds true. The, part of the reason we give is to support the mission and ministries of our church here at Glenwood. And yes, that giving supports my income, my living, if you will, as your pastor, along with Pastor Chris. It also supports, you know, helps pay the support staff of Kim and Dana here in our church, too. And so, yes, that's part of what your giving goes towards. Um, some of you have been faithfully giving for years. Hey, man, do I thank you. Thank you, thank you for your faithful giving for so many years here at Glenwood. And some of you, you've just started giving for the very first time. And I'm thankful for you as well. In fact, in 2015, there were 105 adult giving units who gave at least once in tithes and offerings. And here's what I'm really excited about. Of that 105, 12 of you gave for the first time. 12 first-time givers in the year 215. That's awesome. And then I get really excited that there were 15 youth and children giving units. The average amount given in 215 was $2,862 per the 105 adult giving units. So again, I cannot thank you enough for faithfully giving in 215, but perhaps, perhaps you're here this morning, and, and if you were honest, between you and God, you'd have to say, man, I, I struggle a little bit in my giving. It's not as faithful as I desire. It's not as faithful as I know it should be. Or maybe you've never started to give at all. If, if you fall into that category, then let me encourage you to go to number two here on how to get started, and that is to automate your giving. Automate your giving. Decide in advance to faithfully give in 2016. Many of you give faithfully in person utilizing the giving envelopes that our church provides. That is, when you come to church like now, here after, you know, in a few minutes, we're going to have the offering place pass by or during the discovery hour, you come to church and you place your giving envelope in the offering plate. And that is a great option which many of you participate in and have done for years. But if you struggle to give faithfully or if you have yet to start giving, then I would encourage you to automate your giving. Here's what happens. When you automate your giving, you are deciding in advance to faithfully give. And God always blesses faith. 
Just as automating your bills helps you to stay faithful in paying your bills, automating your giving helps you to stay faithful in honoring God in your finances. You say, well, how do, how do I automate my giving? It's really simple. The simplest way is by setting up a recurring gift online through our church's website, glenwoodconnection.org. You just click on the giving tab at the top, click on the, this big box that says recurring gift, click on that, and then you can set it up. You can even determine the frequency of how often you want to give, the amount. And if you want to change it at any point in time, you can always go back and change it. It's that simple. It's safe and secure. If you have any questions about that, we're more than willing to help you here in the church office do that. And so if you don't give online already, but are ready to move to a, a more consistent option for giving, then this option may be right for you. Here's the bottom line. Wherever you may be this morning, in your relationship to the Lord, God's plea to you is this. Return to me. Don't rob me. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you as our Heavenly Father. We come as your children. And we thank you for your grace through your Son, Jesus Christ. And the reconciliation that we have because of Jesus and that we have been adopted into your family through faith in your Son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, we thank you for the forgiveness of sins that you offer to us over and over and over again when we stray from you. And so perhaps even now there are some who need to come to you in prayer and need to confess their sins and repent and seek your forgiveness. I pray that you would lead and guide in that manner. Lord, perhaps there are some here who are, are struggling in this area of just faithful giving. I pray that you would speak to them through your words this morning and you would do a work in their heart that only you can do. As the praise team sings, this is your opportunity to just, you go to the Lord in prayer. Do business with God as he, sees, as, as he leads you to do.